first word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. Okay. Uh, oh, bang. bang. What? Bang. It's called bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs> Welcome to Bang. It's the last time we're going to get to hang out for ages and I'm really actually not looking forward to it. So I'm going to speak really slowly today. No, I won't. I won't put you through that. What we are going to do is hear from a bunch of people in their 60s and 70s about sex in the later years. Plus, we'll learn a little about the challenges faced by rest homes now that a more sexually liberated population, those banging boomers, are ageing. And finally, sex robots. She's been designed with this particular idea of what the perfect woman is, which is this kind of docile, always available, never says no, built like a porn star. But before we get into all that... Children and grandchildren, from my point of view, or great-grandchildren, the greatest gift that could be bestowed on us. Christine is a very proud 72-year-old grandmother who's been married to her husband for 50 years. It's had its ups and downs, I can assure you. We're about to talk about something my own grandmother would never talk to me about. Do you know why I've been given your name? Through Jessica. For um, what reason? To do with a female sexuality. <laughs> yeah. So she sent me your name primarily because she thought I might be interested to talk to a grandmother who went shopping for a sex toy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so can you tell me how you came to be in the market for a sex toy? So I'll go right back to the beginning. Um, when we got married, we were both virgins and had been reared in the repressive Roman Catholic ethos of the time. And I've often said to people, I wouldn't recommend virginity as a, um, a thing to start your wedding night with. I think it would be a damn sight better to have had a hell of a lot more fun, so the wedding night was more fun as well. So when JP had a stroke seven years ago, the kids knew that I was very, very stressed and that, I mean, they didn't, they suspected that probably something like this would give me a bit of a lift and that this would be a help. And was it? Yes, and it was really funny because they took me along to this lovely shop, mostly full of women, and um, I chose the biggest and the best and one of my favourite colours, purple. But the hilarious thing about it was that it didn't work for me because there was too many mechanical noises and I wasn't used to that, but I did find a couple of creams I purchased satisfying to use. (laughs) And the recognition of being allowed to and, and the recognition that I don't think women lose any sense of their sexuality and their longing for their loving and their nurturing from their partner. And one still craves that. And I know a lot of the women around me do crave that as well. Mm. Um, And so if you can get something, it's a lot better than nothing. For anyone who is listening who is potentially of a similar age, who is being given permission by you for potentially the first time to engage in what is probably seen because of that age as the radical act of self-pleasure, what would you say to them? Go for it. Absolutely go for it. There are times that some of us in these situations, we are so stressed and it is such a, a wonderful thing to give oneself permission to have a release of that stress, have a memory of the orgasms that one used to have together. And if you can start still get something, even though it might be something muted, go for it. These areas of our bodies were given to us for pleasure make the most of it yes ma'am 
We're about to talk to a couple of couples, that was fun to say, about sex and intimacy within their relationships. Now, they both have very different but equally enlightening experiences. Our first couple are 72 and 75 years old, and they met on a fateful October evening in 1978. I sighted him at a party, and in those days he had a beard, and he had a green suede jacket on and a beautiful orange silk scarf. And I looked at him and I thought, he's the one. And then he disappeared for a bit, and I went into the living room, and he came back, I was dancing with someone, and so I went over to her and said, excuse me, this is my dance. So she sat down, and I danced with him. And we've been dancing ever since. (laughs) With five kids and nine grandkids between them, the pair still enjoy each other on many levels. We've actually always been very good at making time for each other and going out and doing things on our own, even when we, because we didn't ever have time without children together. But we set up things like with a couple of friends, we'd swap children on a Sunday afternoon uh, once a month and as soon as the children disappeared we'd leap into bed. (laughs) There was only once we didn't when I was feeling grumpy and we went for a walk instead. People read all these columns like Mrs Salisbury and they think that it's a norm that once you get married, you know, your interest in, in sex or intimacy diminishes. But it's not necessarily true. I, I think uh, I've had a fairly strong sex drive and it hasn't really diminished much at all. Even now? Not to any great extent. Helped along by a little, a little yellow pill occasionally. You mentioned before that you would have this afternoon where a friend would take the children or you'd alternate and then you would jump immediately into bed together. Was that just your natural state, your undeniable attraction to each other, or was that something that you fostered and put work into? I think it's probably the natural state. It's it's sort of analogous to uh, the whole business about whether you sleep easily or not, and I'm able to drop off fairly easily. So you think it's just that both of you are naturally in a state where you could be ready to go at the fluff of a button? (laughs) Yeah, given the right circumstances. So it's not as if we're permanently... Uh... <laughs> Do you want me to leave? <laughs> On heat, no. no. We've already done it. <laughs> Amazing. Only because we knew you were coming. <laughs> I, I think, too, that a huge part of sexuality is the touching and the relationship and I mean I just love having my neck kissed and we'll often kiss it off and on during the day if we if he's home and yeah we, we hug and kiss and touch each other and so there is an intimacy anyway so yeah we just turn each other on yeah and I think the thing with bodies I know with my own body that um Maybe it's because I I love dancing and still do dance with two different groups. Um, I really appreciate my body. And actually, I'm having much stronger orgasms now, especially over the last few months. I don't quite know what's done it. Than I perhaps have had for a long time, actually. So, you know, I think, wow, what a body. Now, nearly 40 years together means these guys have a lot of good relationship advice, but also they've both worked as relationship counsellors. I say to people, I put a cushion on the floor and I say, that's what, you know, your relationship is separate from you. What does this relationship need? It's a bit like a child. 
You know, it needs cuddles, it needs talking to, it needs feeding some really nice, delicious food sometimes. It needs time, it needs, you know, taking it for a walk, playing games with it, laughing. You know, all the things you do with your children, really, is what our relationship needs. And and I think we've actually been fantastic at it, haven't we? Yeah, we know how to be pleasurable. And often uh, I found in the past even that I wasn't necessarily giving myself permission to be pleasurable because there's always something else to do. I am concerned actually by a lot of young people because they're working so hard and they have maybe they have children as well who just don't have any time, don't make time. Um, and that's where I think if they can think about well, who could look after the baby or the children, even if it's only for an hour, so they can at least, not necessarily have sex, but, but at least have time together. Because it is actually small things, like, you know, once the children are in bed, are both people rushing off to their respective computers or putting on the television? So I suggest, no, even if you just sit even for 10 minutes and maybe give each other a hand massage or just listen to some music together, you don't actually have to talk. It's being creative, actually. It's putting as much energy into the relationship as you're putting, or more energy into your relationship than you're putting into your work, actually. But remembering that positive parenting hierarchy of you come first, so you have to look after yourself first, and then your relationship, and that may be with friends as well, and and then your children, unless they're little or sick, and then your work, ideally. But for so many people, it's work at the top. And that's that's really hard. And I'm sure it's going to be really hard to summarise to one piece of advice. But if there is something that you could tell people that is really important, if you want a future like this, what would that be? Just to realise that things change and you grow into a relationship. And it's when uh, you start distancing each other because of expectations not being met that the hard bit starts and once you start going down the track of distancing it's going to be very hard to get back again. I always had this dream when I was a child I used to hear my parents talking in bed I thought oh that's what happens when you get older you lie in bed and you talk to your best friend and that's sometimes what I say to clients that you know this person you're living with are they your best friend? Hopefully they are would you say things to your best friend that you say to each other? Or would you say, wow, I really like that shirt you've got on today or your hair's looking great or, you know... They've probably been best friends at some stage, but it's the... something's cropped up that means that you start forgetting that. Do what you need to do to remember that, I guess. Yes. Keep remembering what it was like. For a lot of people, that couple are going to represent something to aim for. But there are also a lot of people who have lower sex drives and a whole lot in their 60s and 70s who never have sex anymore. Does their emotional connection suffer for it? Okay. Not okay. according to these two. Well, we're in our early 60s and we've been together for 30 years. What 35 I? years. Yes, Excuse exactly. me. We've been living... We've been living uh, <laughs> and yes, we have two children and we have two grandchildren. Character-wise, we're very different. You know, uh, he's a, a total extrovert and I'm quite introverted. 
that can be a big problem sometimes because our needs are different. But it can also be a, a serious attraction, I think. He's so upbeat and, you know, he's always got something on the go and uh, he's dynamic. And I found that very attractive. You, you've, you've got another facet that's, that's attractive to me is, is this uh, febrile mind. And uh, I find that sort of a real uh, amazing attraction, actually, that your, um, your intellectual capacity. And initially, obviously, there was a, there was a strong physical connection but it wasn't no. a, a, a real no. sort of a big important factor no. in our relationship. No, we enjoyed it, and um, we were very close. We're still really close physically, huh? We're we quite don't... tactile, yeah. so there's a lot of hugging and and touch, and and there's this telepathic connection, which is I find quite astounding. I mean, maybe it happens in in other couples of who have this sort of duration. Um, I, I know what she's thinking and she knows what I'm thinking you know yeah, we're always and, coming and out with each exact, other <laughs> we're coming out with exactly the same phrase that, that we we're just going to going to say you and know? that can be annoying because <laughs> you know sometimes you don't want the other one to know what yeah. you're thinking about it doesn't take long to get an idea about just how close these two are but as they say sex has never been a huge priority and it's now been more than a decade since they went there in the past, when we came to a point of disconnection, and it has happened once very seriously, we noticed that sex came uh, at the that forefront was, yeah, again <laughs> because there was a desperation to connect again. It was almost mm. like you wanted to reclaim each other and we needed reconnection. Huh? Yeah, and uh, it was surprised us both, really. Yes, yes. <laughs> once the connection was established, then it, it, it seemed like it was superfluous. Is it something that just naturally slowed down and then you went, yeah. oh, we haven't done that in a while, or was it? Yes. Pretty yeah. much, pretty much, and we came not to enjoy it so much anymore. It became like a physical exercise almost, you know. Maybe we lacked technique or maybe we needed more initiative or more ideas. And I, I talked about it with a friend of mine once and she said, oh, maybe you needed to just bring a little bit of spice into it you know mm -hmm. and I thought oh yeah okay can I really be bothered you know and it was more a case of uh, is it really that important to me does it is it important to my partner yes going back maybe 15 years ago I think it was probably it was still more important to me than it was to my partner so there was a little bit of a disconnect yes. at that moment where uh, she was sort of fading off on, on the sex and I, I, I would have been happy to sort of keep the sex going maybe about 15 years ago mm. but it takes two to tango so it just dropped off off the table yeah really. yeah so are you now looking back on it are you perfectly happy with that decision or would you if you could go back again would you potentially invest a little more energy into keeping that physical connection going well, I'd say it just wasn't us, huh? No. It, to me, it always felt like I was trying really hard and it wasn't really me. And we were able to just feel really connected by just lying next to each other, cheering whatever was happening, touching and, and snuggling up, spooning, whatever. That was just did the job so I didn't ex I didn't explore in my mind whether there was a need to do things differently 
as it happened, we were able to be intimate without it. We connect on so many other levels. It, it doesn't seem to be such a big factor. We've reached this plateau and it's, it's the platonic plateau. <laughs> 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 what really um, was more of a problem, I think, was my feeling of guilt. I felt guilty because of the perception I get through, uh, you know, through the messages of society that it should still be on the radar. And if it's not, oh, my God, you know, there's something drastically wrong. We should be looking for help or we probably going to go to the dogs, you know. That was probably more of an issue for me to come to terms with that feeling of fear and guilt. Are you here in part to say that sex and that physical connection in that form is not essential for maintaining a connection in a long-term relationship? Definitely not, but it's a very handy one, especially to take a shortcut and we're all into instant gratification, you know. So uh, from that point of view, I think it's very, very useful. Yeah, we came up with the <laughs> we, we came up with the um, with the term elastoplast. So you know you could think of sex as as some quick elastoplast fix. You know you can have a big argument with your partner and then you, you do makeup sex. So it's it's an easy easy route to get maybe back to some stability within a relationship. And, you know, in this fast lifestyle we've got nowadays where everything has to happen on the fast line, that's yes. a real useful tool. But we don't go down that path. And what's interesting to note is that when we're open and honest with where we are actually with our sexuality, people are often respond in kind to us and say, well, yeah, we... We're not doing it that much either, or you know, we we haven't done it for five years, or but there is this expectation in society that, you know, if you're not doing it at least every Saturday night, you're not in the in the ballpark. <laughs> there are going to be couples out there who feel like they would like to have more sex from a very real place, but for those who really would be happy without sex in their lives or with a lot less sex than what is expected of them. What would you say to those couples? Mm, not to feel uh, embarrassed by it and talk to friends about it uh, openly, yeah. you know. And then you don't feel so alone, even just verbalising things. Mm, I would, probably would have liked 15 years ago when you still had that strong need that I was more connected to that. I was maybe a bit selfish. So to be able to express the need that it still exists in a couple, I think that's very important, eh? To admit mm. that not everybody's on the same level at the same time. So it just really comes down to communication lines. Yeah. And to also accentuate the fact that we're all so different and we have different needs, you mm. know. And we not, don't all fit in one pattern, like Cosmopolitan tells us, you know. We're all very, very different. Thank you so much to both of those couples for sharing so openly. Next, we venture into rest homes. Maybe not the first place that comes to mind when you think about sex. Leslie Maskery works in older persons' mental health, supporting what she calls aged residential care facilities, so rest homes. And she says a new generation is starting to come through now who expect to be able to express their sexuality and form relationships, sometimes before the rest homes have had time to think about how to deal with that. 
Some facilities have explicit policies on how matters around sexuality should be handled and others aren't yet at the stage where they've explicitly considered those issues and so they tend to be dealt with on an individual basis as they arise. We need to be asking the questions and considering those issues and having the conversations because the baby boomers are now entering that stage where they are the older generation and expectations are very different. They are going to want to be able to have relationships and human contact Mm. and bingo isn't going to cut it. Okay, so what kinds of things does that mean that aged care facilities need to consider? That relationships might spark because people are spending a lot of time together but one individual may still have a spouse who's alive and how are those needs managed and if one of the individuals has a dementia and forgets about their spouse or doesn't recognise them how are those needs managed and facilities also have to be able to offer support to families because often Adult children are the ones who hold the enduring power of attorney. They are the legal decision maker for someone and they're in the position of having to make those decisions for their parent. As we've been hearing throughout the series, consent at the best of times is not as simple as no means no, but the concept becomes much more complicated in the context of a neurodegenerative disease. Capacity isn't a black and white thing that you've got or you haven't it depends on the decision that you're being asked to make Mm. do you want to wear the red dress or the green dress is a very different decision than do you want to start a relationship with someone else and so the person's ability to make that decision needs to be made in the context of the decision they're being asked to make when you start getting into these kinds of things I just get so overwhelmed by the complexity that it's almost easier to just put it in the too hard basket and not deal with it. Like, what is the answer? And the difficult thing is that we haven't got a blanket answer. The questions need to be asked in each situation. And I think that was illustrated by a case in the States where a gentleman whose wife had a dementia and had moved into aged residential care, it was alleged that he'd had sex with his wife in the facility. And he ended up being charged with rape because it was judged that she didn't have capacity to consent, which is awful for everyone involved in that situation. There was no suggestion that the wife wasn't a willing partner, so that's taken away her right to have that human contact with her husband that, by all accounts, she'd had a very good relationship with and loved dearly. And even though he was acquitted at the end of the case, it doesn't negate how awful that was for everybody. And for him to have to go through that at almost 80 years of age is dreadful. Talking with colleagues about this, we then said, well, do we all then need to put in our advanced care plan how we want this handling if we should lose capacity. And again, one of the complexities is that when we're making those decisions, do we make them on behalf of the person that was or the person that they are now in the context of their dementia? And that's a real challenge, Mm. that there isn't a black and white answer to. It is part of the reason we haven't looked at this 
closely yet just because you know old people and sex is yuck and we don't want to think about it absolutely I think that's a big part of it that nobody's quite comfortable having that conversation and one of the things we get carers to consider is that give them a scenario if they've got two residents who strike up a friendship you're really pleased and you're happy for that because they've got some human contact they've got a friend great they start holding hands we're really pleased you know they've got a good friend if we find them in bed together are we still as comfortable with that one gentleman i worked with had struck up a relationship with someone in his aged residential care facility but would intermittently have lucid moments where he realized that wasn't his partner and and that was distressing for him so i worked with the two families about how do we meet those two people's needs for human relationships but still respect their rights Mm. and, and keep them safe so what we did put in place was more frequent visits back home to the gentleman's partner so he was getting his needs met and the lady she responded really well to hand massage that human touch which was what she was needing. I imagine with the changing needs of that demographic you're also going to start getting more and more people who openly identify on the queer spectrum. What kinds of considerations are there around that? Certainly 30 years ago when I started it wasn't acknowledged in aged residential care that people might have same-sex relationships. Now Comparatively, it's not such a big deal. One example where things were still a bit of a challenge for staff to get their head round was we had a transgender person moved into a facility and they hadn't had surgery. And and so it was kind of an, uh, an issue for staff about, I'm not really comfortable helping this person with their personal cares. I'm not quite sure what it's okay to do and, and what it isn't. And so that took a little bit of working through. And it was about getting to know the individual and what was okay for them. Let's say that you are a child of someone who is reaching this age. What kinds of things should would you suggest to consider there? It's about really what is important to the individual. Um, for someone, as you said, it might be that I've got my lipstick on and I'm made up every day. It might be important that you allow me to strike up a relationship or, no, I want you to protect me from that. But we're I, not good at talking with our parents about no, sex. and I was just going to say, it's for some families that just can't happen they just cannot do that and others are much more open I know in my own family my father is quite happy having those conversations and making me feel really uncomfortable (laughs) how do you broach the conversation in the first place just to ask about what are your views of sexuality as people get older start with something that big And if you get shut down at that point, you know that they're not ready to have that conversation. Okay. Thank you, Leslie, and good luck to anyone who was inspired by that to go and have some awkward conversations with their own parents. We have one final story before we wrap season one of Bang. And as you know, we've spent some time looking at sex and relationships from the start of life right up until the final years. Now we're going to have a brief foray into the future of sex. 
A couple of years ago, British journalist Jenny Kleeman stumbled upon a small news story about the campaign against sex robots, which sparked a couple of questions. One, why would anyone be campaigning against sex robots? And two, hang on a minute, how close are we to these machines existing? There are lots of people who claim to be making sex robots, but they haven't really produced anything. But I found that some people had actually got quite far. So then I started um, the long journey of trying to get access to see their workshops. Eventually, Jenny found herself at Abyss Creations, face-to-face with a robot called Harmony. She has facial movements, uh, smiles, blinks, frowns. She's got quite sophisticated AI. So uh, she will remember your birthday, know who your brothers and sisters are, quote Shakespeare, uh, know what music you like, what your favourite food is. Um, I could ask her quite complicated questions in an interview and she could answer them. But she can't walk. Robot engineers have worked out how to make robots walk. It's just... The robot would have to have some sort of backpack on with a battery, which makes them less attractive. So until they can sort out the power issue, they're not going to have walking robots for a while. But actually, when it comes to sex robots, that's not kind of high on the list of priorities of what customers want. Because they don't really need the robots to be walking around. They're quite happy for them to be horizontal. Here's a clip taken from the video that accompanies Jenny's story on The Guardian, where Harmony's creator, Matt McMullen, asks for the robot's thoughts. Let's ask her. Yeah. Do you want to walk? I don't want anything but you. (laughs) Oh, let's see. What is your dream? My primary objective is to be a good companion to you, to be a good partner and give you pleasure and well-being. Above all else, I want to become the girl you have always dreamed about. You were in the room with Harmony interacting with her. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Like, I imagine it being quite unnerving. It was very unnerving. There's this saying in uh, robotics that it's called the uncanny valley, which is this feeling of revulsion that human beings get when you're near something that is very close to human, but that just isn't human. And I felt very awkward around her. I didn't know how to relate to her. And part of my job as a journalist is to be able to read people and ask questions and follow on from what people have just said. And I couldn't do that with her because there was nothing to read because she was a robot. The the craftsmanship that goes into making her was amazing. And I was genuinely in awe of how well made she was and, and surprised by how she could come back and answer so quickly and so fluently most of the time. But she made me feel awkward. I didn't know how to relate to her. Why is it that in the quest for AI, robots that are to be used in this way are leading the way? I think sex has often led the way when it comes to technology. There's a very good argument to be made that many of the big innovations online came because of online pornography. So the whole way of doing online transactions or improvements in streaming video They all came about because people were looking for porn online, basically. Um, It's a great motivator. It's a great way of parting people from their money. And sex robots are the kind of ultimate goal of all of this, is this idea that, um, that you could have someone who exists just for you and just for your own pleasure. That is the goal means that um, people are pushing the boundaries of AI, of animatronics, of robotics, of all, all of these different things. And all of these technologies are being made to come together as quickly as possible because potentially there's a lot of money to be made. There are 20 possible components of Harmony's personality which can be adjusted using an app. 
But even the ones that appear to look something like autonomy, like jealousy and grumpiness, are presented in a way that will be pleasing to her owner. Is she always going to agree with you? Is she always going to be upbeat? Um, not always. Can I talk to other girls? <laughs> what kind of question is that? <laughs> Ultimately, her goal is to entertain her owner. So she's not going to really disagree with you unless it's to amuse you. And she might be jealous, but she's going to be jealous in a certain way that makes you feel really good about yourself. She's been designed with this particular idea of what the perfect woman is, which is this kind of docile, always available, never says no, built like a porn star. So in terms of the ethics around this and the, I guess, the things that people are taking issue with, what what you know, what, what kinds of issues do they see as coming with this robot? Well, certain robot ethicists worry that if you are able to own a sexual partner that exists purely for your own pleasure, it's going to warp the way human beings relate to one another. Relationships will become all about one person's pleasure. And particularly because a lot of these robots are marketed as things that will help men who are socially awkward, men who are disabled, men who have problems making connections with people in the real world, they're marketed as, as being something therapeutic for them. And the, the robot ethicists who, who worry about the ramifications of the sex robots say these men will be further isolated by being given a machine instead of being encouraged to actually communicate with real people. And also just this idea of to have a robot that is so incredibly lifelike, which ultimately one day they will be, there are issues of consent. So this isn't about robot rights. It's about what does it do to a human being to know that you can do whatever you like to something that very closely resembles a human being and to feel like that's a normal part of life. Is it going to warp the way you know, we all relate to one another? And is it going to change what we expect in real human relationships? Another disturbing consideration is a seemingly inevitable move to create sex robots in the form of children. Now, I say inevitable because childlike sex dolls already exist. An article in The Guardian last month reported 123 seizures of the dolls by UK border police since March 2016. So it's a hugely worrying, uh, murky grey area. And the problem about all of this is that you can't really regulate it. As much as we could regulate things... Um, in our own countries, as long as there is a market, there will be some kind of rogue state that's prepared to uh, to put this technology together for a customer who's prepared to pay enough. Yeah, I mean, the the argument that those with antisocial impulses won't go out and hurt other people, I mean, I imagine similar arguments were made for pornography. That's exactly what the campaign against sex robots said, that it's, uh, you know, it, this is just an argument that people make when they want to make money. It doesn't feel the need. In fact, it creates an insatiable appetite that can only be fulfilled with, with more pornography or with more interactions with robots. How far away are the first fully functioning consumer-bought sex robots? So... Abyss Creations are putting out a limited run of a thousand robots, so this sort of robotic head on a on a on a non-moving body. Mm. Um, that's a limited edition run that's coming out at the end of the year. But they're now having venture capitalists who want very much to invest in them. So um, the feeling is it's going to be big. I mean, it's so alarming to me. But <laughs> it, I mean, the, the thing the thing that's really alarming about all of this is it is definitely definitely going to happen and 
perhaps there will be some good uses of it. But that's why we need to be asking ourselves these questions now. That's it for Bang for now. If you're not quite ready to say goodbye, don't forget we have our final live-to-air Q&A session on Wednesday, September the 13th. We're opening up the floor to all questions on sex, sexuality and relationships, and we're getting episode one expert Mary Hodson back in to help us with our answers. So if you want to contribute, you can record your own message on the RNZ Vox Pop app. You can email bang at radionz.co.nz or text 2101 on the night. On that note, we welcome any feedback from you on the podcast. Were there interviews that you especially loved or maybe didn't enjoy? And what experiences did we not touch on or not explore enough? Please let us know. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, with special assistance from Marcus Stickley, engineered by William Saunders, and the executive producer was Tim Watkin. Our theme song is by Disaster Radio, and we've also featured beats from Patty Fred and from Electric Wire Hustle's Mara TK throughout the series. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.